There's an old African proverb. Do not blame God for creating the tiger. Thank him for not giving it wings. I turn on the radio in the car and I'm listening to 1010 Winds. That's Deputy Inspector Eugene McCarthy. He's been a member of the NYPD for 28 years. And the night before, out in Las Vegas with the Siegfried and Roy show, the tiger got loose in the show and he attacked, I'm not sure, was it Siegfried or Roy, but one of them were attacked. Breaking news, one of the rare tigers of Siegfried and Roy attacked. The tiger that attacked Roy. Officials are reporting that Horn was attacked by one of those tigers. On October 3rd, 2003, Roy Horn was performing in his famous Vegas show, Siegfried and Roy. Ladies and gentlemen, Siegfried and Roy. Which features white lions and white tigers. During the show, a seven-year-old tiger by the name of Montecor attacked and mauled him in front of a live audience. The tiger bit into Mr. Horn's neck and dragged him off the stage. So I remember listening to that, and I was like, it must have been an interesting show to see that happen live. When I got to work, I called the ESU operations desk, and the officer on the other end of the phone told me, did you hear about this tiger in Harlem? We were joking with the late tours when we came into work that morning, and they were like, hey, you guys are going to get called for a tiger job. And we were like, all right. It's time for you guys to go home, unload the trucks, enough of the, the pranks and the jokes. There are more than 8 million stories in the city of New York, one for each of her residents. And you never know the day when your story will become a part of the legend and folklore of the Big Apple. The officers of ESU Truck 2 and the residents of Harlem were about to have their day. The old saying, where there's smoke, there's fire. We just didn't want to walk in the door because we didn't know what we'd be walking into. I'm retired Detective Sergeant Wally Zions, and this is Breaking the Case, a podcast series written and produced by NYPD Studios and supported by the New York City Police Foundation. After the break, the story of Ming, the Harlem Tiger. When the public needs help, they call the police. But when the police need help, they call emergency. That's Detective Specialist Martin Duffy, a member of Emergency Service Unit Truck 2 in Harlem, New York. Back then, his rank was police officer. The Emergency Service Unit is also known as ESU. We do all the tactical work in the city, hostage jobs. We're all trained scuba divers. We're all trained EMTs. I've handled all kinds of animal jobs. Raccoons, possums, bats, deer. Of course, we get dogs, we get cats. But a tiger, that was something unique. I, I knew nothing about tigers besides, like, a tiger's at the top of the food chain. On Friday, October 4th, 2003, New York City police officers were called to the Drew Hamilton houses in Harlem to investigate the possibility of a tiger living in an apartment in one of the buildings. The Drew Hamilton housing complex sits on the corner of Adam Clayton Powell Jr. Boulevard and West 144th Street on Harlem's east side. The buildings are a mixture of low-rise and high-rise apartments. The call to 911 about the tiger had been anonymous. The tiger's owner had gone to an emergency room with a severe bite wound, which he claimed had come from a shark. However, for the past couple of years, there had been rumors of a large animal living in apartment 5E. Here's McCarthy again, who was the sergeant in charge that day. We just didn't want to walk in the door because we didn't know what we'd be walking into. So we had to do some sort of investigation. 
uh, which involved speaking to the neighbors if they had ever heard anything or seen anything or smell anything unusual. I'm going to do the best I can investigating it thoroughly before I just send my officers into the unknown. And here's Duffy. It's a pretty big gamble to maybe crack open the door of the apartment and advance down a hallway with a fully grown 500-pound tiger inside the apartment that might come charging at you. We're equipped for a lot. We're not equipped for that. It was the beginning of the weekend, and the courtyard at Drew Hamilton Houses was bustling. Imagine elders playing dominoes, children on the playground, and young people on the basketball courts. Everyone was out enjoying themselves. As one of the residents recalls, there was nothing going on. No crime, nobody shooting, no fights. Then all of a sudden, the cops and the news showed up. I knew it was about that tiger. Duffy remembers the crowd getting larger. People in the building knew there was a tiger in the apartment. And I guess as more and more people saw the vehicles and more and more police vehicles responding, people started whispering. So now there's a huge crowd outside on the street, and they're waiting to see how the NYPD's emergency service unit is going to take care of this issue and resolve it safely. Duffy and McCarthy remember that there was a lot of table topping. Table topping is ESU jargon for groupthink. All ESU members are trained in their core curriculum, but some of the officers have special skills and years of experience on the job. Deputy Inspector McCarthy says that ESU officers depend on the previous experience to solve complex situations. That's a beauty about being assigned to ESU. You know, everybody has a voice, everybody has an idea, and at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter what rank you are. We requested uh, the Detective Bureau's Technical Assistance Response Unit to come to the scene, Taru, as uh, known in the NYPD. Taru responded with some of their equipment. We call it a pole camera. While Taru sets up a pole camera in the apartment below, where they plan to film the tiger from an outside window, the ESU crew takes a different approach. As we continue to do our investigation, talking to neighbors, listening against the door, listening against the wall. They decide that the safest way to get a look at the tiger with a pole camera is to cut a hole from the adjacent apartment. We kind of had to laugh when, with our luck, the first hole we cut was into a closet that was filled with clothing. So we had to make a second hole, and we realized we're going to have to do the same thing. We're going to have to leapfrog from room to room if if possible. ESU would use a rinse and repeat approach. Cut a hole the size of a baseball in a wall. Check to see if the tiger was in that room. If it wasn't there, cut open a doorway. Enter the room, secure it, and cut another hole. Here's McCarthy. At that point, the police officer that was making the hole stopped, and he turned around, and he gave me a look like he was shocked. And uh, I was like, what do you see? Do you see it? Do you see it? Do you see it? He's like, I don't see it. I said, you don't see it? He's like, you have to see this. So I walked over to the hall, and it was your traditional 10 by 10 bedroom with a bed in the middle of the floor. I looked in the walls, and there was claw marks traveling from basically the floor to the ceiling. The animal was not inside this room, but the claw marks were there. And the bed was shredded like an animal would rip through a a paper bag. Later on, they would find out that the tiger's name was Ming. After the break, a tranquilizer gun, a photographer, and keeping your eye on the tiger. Ming stands up on all fours. You hear the tiger roar, and I'm like, okay, wow, this this is quite unnerving.
After getting a look at Ming's crib, Deputy Inspector McCarthy decided to check on Taru's progress with the pole camera downstairs. They had plugged their uh, camera into the, uh, the resident of the apartment's TV. So when I walked in, I was able to see this uh, animal sitting on the ground on a 50-inch television. And I remember going, whoa, that's large. And the officers from Taru said, that's nothing. Wait till he stands up. They radioed the team upstairs and asked them to make some noise. As the officers are making the noise and were pounding on the wall, Ming stands up on all fours. We did have a oh-my-God type experience. While the team had the training to get the job done, they didn't have the right type of tranquilizer for a tiger. They had to make sure it was correct. However, once you immobilize a tiger, what do you do with a tiger? Here's McCarthy. How are we going to move it? Where are we going to take it? For guidance, they turned to a vet at the Bronx Zoo, Dr. Robert Cook, who was an experienced practitioner in wildlife medicine. I remember when he initially saw the video, he rounded the size to be 450 to 500, closer to 500 pounds. And he said he looks healthy, and if that animal comes out that window, there's a good possibility that he can move when he gets the ground. And that blew me away because I said, six floors, 60, 60 feet, a minimum of 60 feet, and he's going to move? He says there's a possibility, and he looks healthy enough to do it. Here's Dr. Cook. We started planning this out, what uh, drug to use. They needed something where they could dart one time and not, you know, not have to use multiple darts with large volumes of an anesthetic. And then how would we approach it? And that's when ESU decided that Officer Duffy would rappel down the outside of the building. Make it a rope job. The only way ESU can get access to Ming was from the exterior of the building, five stories in the air. Here, again, is Duffy. So it's a matter of you got to man up and say, hey, I trust the guys that did all the rigging for me. I trust my equipment, and it's my job. In the end, it's my job. Good or bad, I have to get down and try to make this go away. The ESU team needed to anchor the ropes somewhere. Rigging from the roof would add more unnecessary risk to the job. They needed help from the residents of the building. This is Duffy. We went up to the seventh floor, and there were a bunch of guys in the apartment watching a game, and we, we kind of felt bad. We explained our predicament and asked them if we could maybe use their apartment to, to rig some anchors. They never even budged. We moved the TV away from the wall, and we just kind of wrapped some interior walls as anchors, and we were kind of done with our plan, and then we had to sit down and we had to talk to Commissioner Kelly. We went downstairs, and Commissioner Kelly had a, had a meeting with myself, Stevie Collins, my partner that day, Sergeant McCarthy. Police Commissioner Ray Kelly was at the scene. He, along with what Sergeant Duffy estimates was up to a 1,000 people, were watching an event that would happen in no other place than New York City. The greatest show on earth was about to open the curtain on her latest act. And the police commissioner and residents of the Hamilton houses had front row seats. Dr. Cook and his staff prepared the tranquilizer drug for the ESU team. The dart was one of our darts fired through our animal control rifle, which uses a 22 blank to propel the dart. The medicine inside the dart, though, was not ours. Dr. Cook remembers how calm under pressure Duffy was considering the situation. They knew how to dart animals. This was not Officer Duffy's first rodeo, that's for sure. You know, very competent, very calm in the face of this really unusual situation. And the guy I was riding with, Stevie Collins, was a senior guy. And he kind of just said, hey, hey kid, you're going to be the first one out the window. You're going to go out one window 
and if need be, I'm gonna go out the second window. I was the junior guy, and I had to defer to, to what my partner that day wanted, wanted to do. Duffy and his partner, Stevie Collins, really wanted to know how the tiger would react once he was shot with the dart. Here again is Dr. Cook. When they see a human, especially one they don't know, or maybe a police officer with a dart, they're gonna react, right? They're gonna come to the place where that person is and try to scare them off, essentially, right? That's what Officer Duffy could anticipate. The tiger would likely jump up to show his full size. McCarthy was overseeing the job from the Ad Hoc ESU Operations Center. The Housing Authority removed all the window frames to allow Duffy and Officer Collins to repel down to the lower floor. To do this job or any emergency, it takes a team effort. Everyone has a role to play. There were officers responsible for the hauling system, for the descending system, officers that had the responsibility to give commands, and of course, the boss. As a supervisor, you have to trust the people who work for you. And sometimes the best thing for the boss to do is just get out of the way and let the training take its course. Here's McCarthy. They didn't need another voice and another person getting in their way. So uh, I removed myself out of that room into the doorway right before you get into the room and I watched and supervised from that location. Duffy says that the whole experience felt like he was on a television game show. The live audience was at capacity and if he lost, it would be an embarrassment to the department. Plus, there would be a tiger loose on the streets of New York. It's a little unnatural to be hanging outside of a building, about to be lowered to possibly tranquilize a tiger. I remember going up to the seventh floor and looking out the window, and all you saw were just crowds and crowds and crowds of people out on the street waiting to see how the job's gonna end. This is the point where myth and rumor turn into reality. There was a full-grown tiger living in an apartment, and the new guy in the emergency service unit on a rope line with a tranquilizer rifle, seven stories in the air. Here's Duffy again. One of the best lines is like, as I was going out the window, was like, don't embarrass us. Who wants to be the guy that embarrasses himself, embarrasses the unit, embarrasses the police department? Never mind that if I missed the tiger and something went wrong and the tiger came out the window. And again, I was, I was kind of glad that we didn't have an airbag because God forbid, for some reason, the tiger jumped out of a window and landed in an airbag. That means the tiger's gonna survive the fall and then the tiger could very easily run wild in the streets of Harlem. Duffy was right. A full-grown tiger roaming the streets of Harlem wouldn't be a good thing for anyone. Over the years at the NYPD, McCarthy was seasoned. He knew regardless of how good your plan was, you need a backup plan, and most likely a backup plan for your backup plan. There was a plan in place, if the animal did get out the window, that he would be fully neutralized when he hit the ground by officers who would have to uh, discharge shotguns to, to stop him from running. So I had two officers that technically, you know, they're suspended 70 feet in the air, and uh, they're being lowered to, to a pretty precarious position in order to... Uh, discharge a tranquilizer gun at an animal. Something that we had never done that I was aware of in New York City before. You know, we put officers on lifelines at that kind of height, there's always a risk. So in the back of your mind, when you're leading these operations, you're always concerned about their safety. And I, and I was very concerned. Again, here's Duffy. When I got lowered down and I was actually able to see Ming, he was laying down facing away from me. So his hind, his butt, whatever, was, was closest to me and his head was furthest away from me. 
you want to hit an animal in a meaty portion. So I was like, all right, cool. He's laying away from me. He knew I was at the window because the window was open or it's got a child gate in, in the window. And I was just telling myself to breathe. Again, I didn't want to miss. And Ming kind of turned around. He looked back at me, but he didn't say anything. And I was just like trying to tell myself like, oh my God, like there's a massive tiger. So I was just trying to remain calm. And I took a shot. The dart hit him in the in the hind in the in the back. I was just waiting, and it and it seemed like an eternity, but it was probably within a minute. I hear a loud roar and a rumble. I hear Marty, Officer Duffy, uh, saying, "Can you please get me down to the ground?" <laughs> and not that nice of a tone. He wanted to be lower quick. And at that point, my heart was pounding on him pretty quick because I didn't know where he was going and I didn't know what he was doing, but I knew he was he was up and he was aggravated. Here's Dr. Cook. And we know when the tiger got darted because the roar shook the building. It was impressive. And for those who weren't used to tigers, it was kind of shocking. These big ESU guys were like, what the heck's going on in there? He jumped up and he ran away. And when he ran away, he charged the, the far side of the room. I could feel the outside of the building shake. And that's when, again, he turned around and he came charging out the window. And that's that photo that Mr. Roca took where he comes up at the window. The photo doesn't really show when he hit the window, he actually slid one of the panes down and he broke the pane. So now my fear was he was going to charge the window again and possibly get out. The photo that Duffy refers to is famous. New York Daily News photographer John Rocco was in the stairwell of the building next door. He snapped a frame at the exact moment that Ming lunged to the window. After the break, taking a tiger into custody. His paws were tremendous, his teeth were bigger, and his head was enormous. When is anybody, unless you work in a, in a zoo or a circus, when is anybody going to get to touch a, a live tiger? Duffy was on the ground safely, appreciative of his colleagues and thankful that a 500-pound tiger did not jump out of the window. Ming didn't just lay down and fall asleep. He was up, he was mad, and he had a tranquilizer dart hanging from his behind, the meaty part. Here's Dr. Cook. And so I'm watching the video with the commissioner at that point, and 10 minutes pass, and the tiger had come into the room and disappeared into this clutter. And somewhere around 12 minutes, the commissioner said, didn't you say you're supposed to be under anesthesia now? I said, well, you know, this is more of an art than a science. And fortunately for the tiger and for us, shortly thereafter, he raised his head. He looked right at the camera and he was starting to have the kind of the tremors that one sees with anesthesia. At this time, McCarthy and his fellow emergency officers are making their way down to apartment 5E. So at that point, we had to then go in and, for lack of better terms, take the tiger into custody. We knew he wasn't moving because we would hear him moving around the apartment. So uh, we started to make our way down a hallway. And we can hear, as we get closer, we can hear him breathing loud, like a labored breathing. As we get closer, he's laying on its side and his eyes are open, he's looking right at us. Here again is Dr. Robert Cook. We knew that this drug sometimes would cause a hypersensitivity. Even though the animal was asleep, if you touched it, it would react. And sure enough, I got over to the tiger, I took hold of him by his head, and he raised up. I mean, just kind of freaked out for a moment, and then back down, 
Duffy finally made his way to apartment 5E to make sure that he had done his job correctly, that Ming wasn't hurt. Hoping that he was asleep so they can transport him out of the apartment, Duffy wanted to get close to Ming. When is, when is anybody, unless you work in a, in a zoo or a circus, when is anybody going to get to, to touch a, a live tiger? So I remember, like, I got to jump in here and kind of squeeze my way in. By the time Duffy made it to the fifth floor, Ming was in a deep sleep. And the drugs were so powerful that the vet and, I want to say maybe his assistant, had to actually intubate Ming and basically kind of breathe for him. We were able to control his legs and somewhat tie them together. His paws were tremendous, his teeth were bigger, and his head was enormous. We had a box truck from our quartermaster division, and, and that's what we were going to use to transport the tiger. I remember the neighbors were shocked when they saw us coming out of the building. We took him downstairs, and once we got to the lobby, you could just see the, the media circus. The next time someone tells you they had a wild night in the city, consider what New York cops dealt with today. A wild and apparently hungry four to 600 pound tiger roaming around a Manhattan apartment. Here's Dr. Cook. The truck with the transport enclosure was surrounded by police barricades and then police officers locked arm in arm around that and a lot of press. And the crowd starts to roar and the press break through the barrier and they're in amongst us taking photographs. It was really pandemonium. Again, here's Duffy. The Bronx Zoo had agreed they would house him temporarily until they could figure out where they were going to send him because they wanted to quarantine Ming. We had a discussion about whether it could come to the zoo and it wasn't possible. Animal Control took possession of the tiger and so they then went about going through their contacts to find a suitable home. After the break, a tiger becomes a tiger and a legend. Mentally, he had no idea he was a tiger. Noah's Lost Ark Animal Sanctuary sits on 30 acres of land in the northeast corner of Ohio. Its founder and director is Ellen Carnoffel. It all started when a friend of Ellen's asked if he could keep a cougar on her land. People often will get exotic animals and their life circumstances change, or the animal isn't what they expected. We exist for reasons like that, where they are given a second chance. One cougar led to a camel, which led to a few goats. Within the next two years, Noah's Lost Ark was home to over 50 big cats. Once an animal comes here, it stays here for the rest of its life. We don't do any breeding. They don't leave the property unless they need to get medical care, like they need a CAT scan or an MRI. They stay here and just live happy lives and they have servants. Ming couldn't go to a zoo. He had to go to a place where he could be isolated. That's because tiger species can't be mixed in captivity and Ming species was unknown. I got a call that asked me if I could take a tiger. Now, I hadn't seen anything on TV. I had no idea you know, what was the situation with Ming was. And um, I said, of course we can. And I said, you know, we'll pick him up this weekend because my husband was working. And they're like, oh, no, no, we'll bring him to you. Ming arrived at Noah's the next day. By then, he was already internationally famous. They pulled in. It was like you see the paparazzi chasing after famous people. They just like overwhelmed us. And somebody had brought a paper out and showed me, you know, where it said how Ming was kept and everything like that. And I still didn't know, you know, all of the details. Ellen says she felt sorry for Ming when she first laid eyes on him. 
Also, he was not the 400 or 500 pound monster that the press had made him out to be. The reports of him weighing, you know, four, five, six, seven hundred pounds were greatly exaggerated. He weighed in about 250 pounds when we got him. He was actually in good shape. When he first arrived, he was terrified. He was outside for the first time in his life. He could hear the birds, feel the grass, and see the sun. Total sensory overload. For Ellen, this was totally explainable, considering the circumstances. She equates this moment for Ming to a house cat who has never left the house and visits a vet for the first time. He had his natural instincts, but other than that, just the way he watched the other animals, you could tell. Mentally, he had no idea he was a tiger. We kept him, for lack of a better word, off exhibit. People did not see him for many, many years after he came here. Ellen and her staff take a laid-back approach to the animals that live at Noah's Lost Ark. All the animals progress on their own schedule. They sleep when they want to sleep. They play when they want to play. Ellen and her staff are there to serve them and meet the animals' personal needs. Ming was not social, nor did he make sounds his first two years at Noah's. And then, one day, he chuffed. Like somebody flipped a switch. There are two sounds a tiger makes. One, the roar. That means you're in trouble and the tiger is not in the mood to debate. The second, the chuff. That's what they make when they want to like interact with you. And it pretty much I always tell people it's like a hi, you know, hello. And Ming didn't chuff for a couple years. And then once he did, he never stopped. I mean, he was a character. He really was. Regardless of Ming's progress, Ellen still didn't believe that Ming knew what he was. But she had an idea who can help. Jax the Tiger, another resident of Noah's Lost Ark. Ming really took to bonding with Jax, and they would run up and down the sides of the enclosure and play. And I think that's when he really realized he was a tiger. Ming died in 2019. He'd been going through some health issues the last couple of years of his life, but Ellen would tell you this proudly. Ming lived on his own terms. He did things his way. He learned to be a tiger and was loved. He was surrounded by all of us. We had set up an appointment for the vet to come out and to say goodbye. And he was talking to me and I told him it was okay, buddy. You know, I know you gotta go. You know, he just closed his eyes and took his final breath and he was gone. New tonight, a tiger that became a part of New York City folklore has died. With the contributions from animal activists and his fans, Ming was returned to New York and laid to rest in a gold-gilded tomb at Hartsdale Animal Cemetery in Westchester County. To this day, Ming's tomb is one of the most visited in the cemetery's 125-year history. Thank God for the NYPD and what they did to get him out of there safely. All of those people involved in that entire rescue from the veterinarians to everyone who carried him down and especially the sharpshooter. I mean, what they did was truly amazing. Here's Dr. Cook. A single tiger or you know, a single bear or whatever people might wanna keep in their home, they're usually cute as cubs. You know, a little baby alligator even can, you know, a lot of people like those. But they just, they grow up and they're wild and they shouldn't be in people's homes. We're not doing the right thing for them or the species that they represent. All of us are focused on the future of species in the wild and that's what we should be doing. We should be uh, maintaining them in captivity properly and then ensuring that they have a place in the wild. And the other thing that 
just really impresses me to this day how professional the officers in the New York City Police Department were. You know, especially Officer Duffy and the ESU unit. These guys were calm in the face of uncertainty. They were thoughtful in the face of a lot of pressure and just performed brilliantly. Here's McCarthy. There's certain experiences that you get in that command that are lasting imprints, and this is one of them. I'm glad that you know, my officers were all safe that day. It was a complete team effort and uh, very proud to be part of it. Again, here's Duffy. Being a member of the New York City Police Department and especially a member of the Emergency Service Unit, it really is a ticket to the greatest show on earth. Breaking the Case is written and produced by NYPD Studios and supported by the New York City Police Foundation. Thanks to WCBS News, CBS News, ABC News, the BBC, and Cheddar TV. Subscribe to Breaking the Case for a new episode every other Thursday in Season 2. If you like our show, please consider giving it five stars and recommending it to your friends. And follow the NYPD on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. I'm retired Detective Sergeant Wally Zions. Thanks for listening. Until next time, be safe.